and we are back with Cibolo Creek Conversations. I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. We got a new setup here today. Yeah, I just keep on changing up on you. <laughs> I don't think there's uh, two weeks that it's ever been the same. Well, we were over there for a while. Over um, there, meaning over in your living room. In my living room in front of the TV. Right. Yeah. But I grew tired of it. Did you? Yeah. Granted, nothing, no place in this house is really ideal for this. Eh. It's fine. Yeah. Really, it's the cameras. The cameras have no zoom, which is why they have to sit so close to us. Because <laughs> normally I'd like set it over here and one over there. So that way we wouldn't have to worry about our hands and stuff. But right. Not that we do, but I see it back in on the back end of it. Well, you know, our original uh, ambitions for this podcast was just a casual conversation as if we were having lunch together and. I think if we were having lunch together, we wouldn't be worried about camera angles or anything. So It's true. People can just be glad that we're not eating. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's all good. Uh, maybe maybe someday when uh, there's opportunity, we'll have more of a studio situation to be in. But until then, let's just keep having some great conversations. Yeah, I don't think anybody really cares. Yeah. So I think since our last time we recorded, we uh, you celebrated a birthday. I did, 25. 25. Yeah. How's that feel? About the same. <laughs> I don't think, I've been to, I've told people, I don't think I'm going to feel right until I'm like 40. Well, yeah, but you've always been older than you are. Yes. In your, kind of your maturity and your your personality. So when you're 40, you'll just be 60. Exactly. Well, yeah, probably so. I'll be crotchety already. I don't, I don't think you'll ever just catch up to where you are. You'll always just be... My personality age with me? Yeah, exactly. So I'll just forever feel not in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't really intend it to be that dysfunctional, but... Well, uh, I am a glass half empty kind of guy, so it would be natural that I would go there. You know, you describe yourself as glass half empty or somewhat combative or somewhat um uh aggressive i i don't ever get that from you yeah i think you're 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 a good thinker and you you have thought well about different topics and you have stances and opinions on those things where you're not intimidated or um you know yeah, intimidated to back away from, but that's not necessarily aggressive. Maybe it's just the impulsive feeling that I have 24-7 to assert whatever I think about a thing. <laughs> well, that might be a thing. Because, like, I don't do it most of the time. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm holding my tongue. But that's also just wisdom, too. Yes, so celebrate that at 25. Yeah. In fact, yeah, you know, the good thing about being old is that you can just say what's on your mind and you don't get judged as harshly. <laughs> Well, you may still get judged as harshly, but then people just go, oh, he's just old. Yeah, he's just, just ignore old. Him. That's actually a fear of mine is becoming so old that people stop taking, like, they stop taking you seriously. Yeah. There's a, there's something that I've currently felt, which is I'm too young, so people don't take you seriously. Okay. And then there's something that you feel, I'm guessing, whenever you're old, and granted, some of it's brought on by the old person, but they don't take, they don't get taken seriously either. So it's at both so there's ends like of your a life. Very small window <laughs> where you might be taken seriously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> I, I think two things is I think there comes an age 
where people take you seriously because you speak more from a place of wisdom and experience. Um, How you speak about that, I think, can influence how they receive it. Um, Plus, I would just say to you, celebrate the maturity and the the wisdom and the thoughtfulness with which you do life at your age because it's it's kind of rare. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely can make you feel like the the black sheep sometimes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I guess maybe I guess probably that's why you don't find me to be aggressive is because most of the time you're not disagreeing with something I'm saying. Mm. But like whenever I'm around people my age, oh, okay. That's whenever yeah, you feel that. The clash kind of happens, yeah. Did did you do anything fun for your birthday? Mm. It was kind of fun. My wife, um, so I like books. So you can see on the back of both me and Paul's head, these are some of my books. Um, and I want to build a library, so I haven't read all these books at all. But I want to be able to go into a into my library and be surprised by something that I find. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. So I buy a lot of books. So my wife bought me 25 books, so wow. one for each year. But she... Um, she wrapped them. It was funny. She wrapped them in newspaper because I, I always, I've always said that I like newspaper is like the best wrapping. But anyway, she right. wrapped it in newspaper, and then she hid them around the house. And every time I would find one, it'd be a scavenger hunt. I'd oh. have to like go find another one. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. Um, and then just dinner with family, a couple of friends, um, had salmon patties. That's just like a staple. Oh, yeah, of you my, were telling me that's one of your favorite dishes. That's one of the few meals my mother would ever actually cook and so uh but i love it and so sorry mother but um (laughs) she hates cooking but uh but yeah so i had that and so yeah it was i'm kind of at that point where birthdays are just kind of another day you know yeah i've always been that way my wife on the other hand high expectations for any type of special day now had your wife done some research on what the the book should be were they on a list that you had? Yeah. Or? Okay. So I have an Amazon list where I just oh. dump all the books that I like. Yeah. And uh, actually, most of them are right behind my head that she, yeah. that she got me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a good time. Appreciated that. Appreciated her. Good. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so you're back in the saddle now. How is that? You know, I'm still, you know, I guess when you get on a horse and – trying to get in the saddle you're still wiggling around a little bit trying to get comfortable i'm still there i'm you know it's interesting i actually have been doing a little research on like post sabbatical um life mm. and uh it's a thing well i'm guessing probably like how not to fall back into the same yeah so one of the articles i read was really interesting the uh, author was talking about the fact that a sabbatical by nature is intended to be a break from your normal routines and particularly your unhealthy routines. Yeah. And so it's long enough for where you can maybe break the habit. So coming back, not only feeling better and more refreshed, rejuvenated, um, there's also the possibility that you're looking at, well, you know what, I was in this rut or I was doing this and this wasn't really helping me with you know where i was going or what i was doing and and uh so yeah there's a little bit of of that fighting some of that old tendency um this this is not a you know a commentary on 
uh, social media. But one of the things I chose to do during my sabbatical was suspend all activity on social media. And um, so I, I hadn't read news in the whole time I was out, um, away from Facebook, away from Instagram. And uh, did a lot of thinking about the role of social media in my life and how it works and doesn't work. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it was really good for me to be away, and I'm still, still honoring that. And the, coming to the conclusion I, I'm going to make that decision going forward yeah. to not be involved. Um, but just the urge to get back into that is, is pretty significant. And so, um, you know, fighting the, the routine of checking in on all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think I might've been telling you, I know I was telling somebody it might've been you, but, um, you know, as a teacher and a preacher specifically, um, being aware of what's going on in my world, like the news, is a part of me being um, proficient to be able to talk to current day situations and realities. So not um, having a daily news source um, is posing a bit of a challenge. Yeah. There's one end that's really good for me to be removed from all that. Um, but the other one, I'm trying to figure out, like, then how do I stay current and aware of what's going on in my world that I can, that I need to talk to and speak to in the course of messages that I deliver or situations I'm in. So uh, still trying to figure that out. But, um, yeah, this post-sabbatical thing's a, a real deal that other people have experienced enough to, to write about. Um, so it's all good. I'm still, but I'm still kind of wiggling around in the saddle trying to get situated again. Yeah, it was. It was. No one else probably noticed this, but whenever you were, I mean, maybe maybe I'm just reading into it. But I could tell for like the first ten minutes of your first message back, I was like, he definitely hasn't done this in seven weeks. Not that you did anything <laughs> bad, but you were just right. like, you were just like, oh, this is something I haven't done in a long time. Yeah. Um, but again, nobody else probably noticed, but I spend so much time, you know, I watch every Sunday and then I have, I go and produce it. And so, yeah, yeah. And I feel like I know you well enough to be able to tell. And so, but it, it went away within like yeah, 10 Yeah, it was minutes. interesting. It wasn't so much the, it was a little bit of being on stage again and kind of, you know, being, te being a teacher again. Um, but it was really like, um, it was more about, uh like the audience, it was more about, um, I don't even know how to describe it. I felt like I was in kind of new company, even though they're hmm. not new. I, they just felt like I was in a different relational context than I'd been for a while. Because hmm. remember, about six of the seven weeks I was gone, I was pretty much all by myself. So, That's true. So just being in a room full of people was like, whoa this is such yeah, a change. yeah yeah you didn't even get to like watch or anything before it was just boom you're on the stage yeah so no so yeah there's these interesting dynamics that i'm encountering having come back from my sabbatical that i'm just navigating yeah it's all good well good good well today i want to talk about something that you've said before and it can sound kind of like a strange phrase to people who have there haven't heard it before, or maybe right. just don't 
have heard it but still don't understand it. Um, and it's kind of come up in the context of having to say more difficult things is whenever I've heard you you bring up this phrase. And you've right. and, and the phrase is the truth will set you free. And it comes from John uh, eight thirty two. Jesus says, "Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." What What do you think Jesus mean meant by that? And uh, what do you mean by it? Hopefully, those two are the same. <laughs> Hopefully, right? yeah. But what is what is what does Jesus mean by that? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, but before I answer it, you know, I I grew up in church ever since the third grade, and good churches that you know preached God's word that was always like a central expression of what I knew church to be. So I've been hearing that phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I knew it to be a a quote from Jesus. I knew kind of the general context of it, but it was just one of many things that Jesus said. And it's only been in the last four or five years that it's really registered with me. Mm in the sense that it's taken on new significance. Because in the last four or five years, I have found myself having to address more challenging, difficult, and disagreeable topics than I ever have. And the the answer to your question that I'm going to get to um, really kind of highlighted for me the power of what Jesus is saying. And um, so in those difficult conversations that I've had and some of the negative reaction that I've received um, in the course of having those discussions, there's times that you, you just meet people and you're in these conversations and you will not agree, you will not see eye to eye, and you, you just, you're at an impasse. And rather than me feeling like this this urgency or panic or weight of trying to convince them. I've just had to learn how to step back and say, God, I'll trust you that your truth will in fact set them free from their inability to understand what we're talking about. Yeah. That's not my job. You'll have to do that work in their heart. And so it's just sort of um, uh, maybe protected me from either beating myself up too much by for not being able to you know, get somebody to understand something or just leaving the responsibility for the choices that they make and the things they believe on their doorstep rather than, than on my own. Mm-hmm. But in the context of John chapter 8, Jesus having this discussion, and I think there's two things that are really at stake in the immediate context. Is One is, what does the audience believe to be the truth about who Jesus is? Not just Messiah, but God come to earth and ultimately Savior of the world. Um, The audience that he was speaking to, they did not believe that. They did not accept that to be true. So the the truth that Jesus is talking about is the conclusion that uh, the the truth about who he is Mm -hmm. and what people decide about that. And then I think it's in verse 38, uh, 34 of that passage um, Jesus talks to that crowd that, that he's addressing about the, the truth that human beings are enslaved to sin. And so the set you free part, I believe, to you know, in the most immediate context, is Jesus saying, 
in order to be set free from the power or the grip or the slavery of sin in your life, uh, truth will do that. The truth about who I am, who Jesus is. So that's how I understand the statement. The truth about who Jesus is and what he what he offers is it possesses the power to provide somebody freedom from the grip or the power of sin in their life. So it's interesting, that phrase, the truth shall set you free, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, is actually pretty common even in secular society. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of universities where you'll find a building or you know some monument on their campus if it's still allowed to stand um <laughs> that those words appear in fact um you know both my boys went to the university of texas in austin i don't think anybody would hesitate to say that's a liberal university yep and um but you go to the the flagship building of the university of texas in austin on campus uh the tower everyone has seen the tower knows about the tower at the base of the tower is a library, and as you approach that library and head up the stairs across the entire, I don't know if it's marble or stone facade of that building, is those words, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now, the way that an unbelieving, a liberal, um, a non-Christian uses that word, those that phrase, and particularly the words truth, is not the truth that Jesus is talking about. Yeah. It's a very intellectual academic thing for them. They're saying through our research, through our use of the intellect, through a careful, deliberate study, through consistent observations, we can come to a conclusion about what is in fact true. And they're using it in a very humanistic perspective. Yeah. Jesus is using it in a very different way, and therefore, as a Christian, then understand it from a very different way, is that he's talking about the truth of who he is as God come to earth, the Savior of the world. That truth in and of itself has the power to set human beings free from the slavery of sin. And um, so it's important to... To inter- it's interesting to note um, how human beings describe themselves or see themselves versus how God describes them or sees human beings. So, you know, I'm preparing my message for this week, and we're going to talk about we're going to talk a little bit about secular humanism as a as a introduction to my theme or my point for this Sunday's message, and. Um, so it's interesting, basically, for a lot of different reasons, uh, secular humanism, it's basically human beings telling themselves what they want to hear about themselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's ultimately that humanism is to place human beings at the center of the universe as the, the definers of what's true and untrue and good and bad and right and wrong. So uh, human beings in a secular humanistic perspective, it's they're at the center and they devise or they define what is true. Well, um, it's the nature of human beings that we will tell ourselves what we want to hear. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's not popular amongst a humanistic worldview 
to think of ourselves as enslaved to anything. Yeah. Because, you know, I have the right to choose. I'm free. Yeah. Or we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, that our heart is depraved and and broken because of the impact of sin. Humanism doesn't even recognize that sort of thing. So a humanistic perspective on the truth shall set me free is, is not a spiritual perspective. It's I will come to know great learning that helps me decide the best course of life. That's, that's kind of a humanistic uh, perspective. What God says about human beings is, I love you. You're incredible. You were created in my image. You have a remarkable capacity and capabilities. But the truth is, you're fallen. Your heart is depraved. You have potential for the greatest forms of evil. And that that has to be addressed. Yeah. Humanism isn't going to see any kind of spiritual or eternal need in that perspective. Jesus is saying, well, the truth is, yes, you're enslaved to sin, but through me and what I provide, you can be set free from that. And that's, that's the part that has kind of taken on new life for me is to um, start to recognize that in, particularly in preaching and teaching, you say the hard things, the things that need to be said in in relationship to biblical truth. And regardless of the pushback you get, you take some confidence in knowing, well, I'm just giving you what you need to be free. Yeah. But I can't choose that for you. So you'll have to, to the audience, you'll have to wrestle with that and decide if you want to live in that spiritual captivity or that blindness for the rest of your life, or you want to acknowledge who Jesus is and your need for him and the power that he can have in your life. So that's, that's kind of my understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And I, I really liked what you said about the secular humanist society, about how we, we won't want to tell ourselves things that I guess upset us or yeah. make us feel uncomfortable. Like you said, be enslaved. And I would say be, even be enslaved to any type of defining roles. So you can see that in our society now. Yeah the destruction of any type of role that would help a person kind of come up, whether that be gender, sexuality, or, you know, what a man's supposed to do, what a woman's supposed to do, et cetera. Um, I mentioned in my sermon that a, a lot of the reason why we focus on the more like love aspect of God or the love attribute of God, that God is love over that he's holy is because his holiness will make our sin very evident. And in, and I, I said, I think, um, I forgot the book's name in the title. But anyways, in a book that I was reading, it, it labeled it as a very, uh, as our culture is being therapeutic. Mm. And so that we'll just tell ourselves the things that we want to hear or, um, you know, <clears throat> somebody who's incredibly out of shape telling themselves that that they're not <laughs> or that, that they're not. beautiful or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, rather than accepting that the reality of the case. Um, yeah, so it's very evident. Yeah, so one of the, my observations about the, the logic of secular humanism is um, basically it comes to the conclusion is that truth is relative. Yep. So your truth, my truth, somebody else's truth. Um, choice is supreme. 
Each person possesses the power to choose as they believe, as, as their truth, you know, defines. And that um, action is personal, meaning I can do whatever I please based on my choice related to my truth. It has no bearing on you. So you can't, you can't say anything by way of um, critique or accountability for my actions because of these are my choices. These are my, this is my truth. This is my, these are my actions. So the, a whole society that's steeped in secular humanism, it permits, it has the freedom to say, well, whatever I believe is right and however I want to live is good. And so we, they don't like the accountability that God brings to that equation. And, and that's the whole nature of uh, progressivism is to push off, to throw off whatever constraints traditional religion has placed on a society. It's, it's running away from that as fast as we can. And in running away from those traditional boundaries of the boundaries of traditional religion is just the, just a, basically a, a permission to do whatever I please. Yeah. And so in doing whatever I please, then I just, I just tell myself it's okay. I just tell myself my truth. And that's a, that's a fundamental flaw of the human nature is that we will only tell ourselves what we want to hear ultimately. And if, if I want to hear that my, you know, um, absurd or, or aberrant lifestyle is, is good for me, then you can't sit in judgment of it and you can't critique it. And so that's, that's why in humanism, they, you can't have, you don't have space for God because God represents some kind of final authority or, you know, substantive truth around which things are measured. Yeah. And, um, so, um, I can't remember exactly how we got there other than, yes, we're seeing in our society, this permissiveness, on all sorts of levels. And it's essentially this reflection of secular humanism that says I can do as I please. And nobody, and certainly not myself, I'm not going to tell myself that that's wrong because that's not what I want to hear. Do you think, so there's a lot of churches that I would probably classify, and people don't like this phraseology, but it's kind of like progressive Christianity. I don't know if you could even call it Christianity in some instances but we'll just call it that do you think that the churches that kind of fall into that way of thinking whether they don't address it or they just straight up you know say that it's permissible do you think that it's that they actually believe i'm sure it changes in most cases but i guess maybe get into like the pressures that you feel as a pastor maybe or as the church kind of feels like from the society so like do you think those churches actually believe it or do you think that they're just avoiding it to keep butts in seats? That's <laughs> uh, probably both. Yeah. Or you got combinations thereof. But if if a church or a teacher is unwilling to say the truth, the hard things that a society doesn't want to hear, whatever his motive is, um, butts in the seats or popularity or platform or money or, you know, whatever. Um, 
if he's unwilling to deal with the difficult issues of his day that he skirts or avoids or she skirts or avoids the truth, then can you legitimately say they believe that? If they're willing to, it's God's word, but I don't want to say it, therefore you have to say, well, how genuine is their truth, is the truth of what they actually believe about it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I guess that brings up another question that I had earlier is like, I think that we're going to definitely get things wrong when it comes to our interpretation of everything that God exactly meant in his word. Like we're going to get things wrong. Sure. But there's obviously things that um, I don't know if they're necessarily compatible. And so kind of like you were saying, it's like, well, does that, that essentially kind of throws into question what they actually believe in general. Um, so where is that line between someone who who doesn't believe or who's having a hard time with something and somebody who's refusing it? Am I making sense at all? Well, keep going. I think so, I know where, where you're headed. Like I have some people that I've talked, I, I have people that I've talked to and I, and they seem to almost have made a completely different religion. Okay. So for instance, there's people that I know that will essentially just throw at you. Well, the, the, the world will, whenever Jesus tells his disciples, the world will know you because of your love for one another. That's the only, or like, you know, love yeah. God and then love people. Like that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then every time you bring up anything else, they just, you know, they kind of refute it with that. Is that, are they, are they, um, I guess, are they Christian? Oh, wow. You just took it right there. Uh, are they Christian? Um, and by that, I mean, and of, course, and of course, I know that you and I can't sit here and say, sure, yes, I know the person's heart. But, like, is it even the same ballpark? Right. I, I think we're going to be surprised at, at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or a Christian. Because a, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. I think we're going to be surprised at God's criteria for legitimate disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling, I was in an interesting conversation the other day with somebody and they're, I, I don't, they weren't, I don't think they were being malicious, but they were turning the screws on something that I had said. Like, do you really mean this or that? And um, I said, you know, I think we're going to be surprised. God is not obligated to say, well done, good and faithful servant to everybody. Yeah. He's not, he's not a liar. So if somebody wasn't a good and a faithful servant, he's not going to tell them that. Um, just because you got into heaven by the skin of your teeth in the sense of just doing the bare minimum, which maybe a question, is that is that even possible? Um, he's not going to say, you know what? You did a great job down there. Like some kind of, you know, middle school award ceremony. It, it, it won't be that. He's, he, he deals only in the truth. 
So he will say that to individuals who did a good job at being faithful. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be surprised at people who maybe had all the right answers. They knew all the right things to say. But their faith in those things as the words of God was not sufficient. They knew them. They didn't trust them and yeah. live in obedience to them. Um, James, what, James chapter 2. I mean, even the demons, they know who Jesus is. They don't submit to him. So they're, whatever they understand about Jesus doesn't save their soul. So I think, again, you and I can't sit in judgment of the, the nature of a person's soul, but a lot of people, I think, are going to find out the hard way that they espoused a lot of, they knew all the Christian things to say, places to be, but they were not living their life in submission to Christ as Savior and Lord and truly ordering their lives around his way. Yeah. So it's... It's completely possible. In fact, it's it's not even hard for me. I don't need to hesitate. It's possible for people to have a huge platform of religious or spiritual teaching who whose faith does not rest in the significance of that truth enough to order their lives around it. That immediately made me think of Kenneth Copeland. Yeah, I mean... That I, dude just... He looks evil. <laughs> I've, I looked up, like, creepy videos of Kenneth Copeland just because I was bored. And, oh, my gosh. I don't know who's watching him and thinking, that guy. God's using him. <laughs> well, there's a long list of folks I probably have that same impression about. But, um, again, I, I I try not to spend much time thinking about them and more time trying to think about is my faith legitimate by the way in which I order my life yeah. around the teachings of Christ? Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to ask myself, well, I say these things are true, but because, you know, and you've always said that faith is essentially just trust, I agree. And trust is only evident when it's tested, essentially. Yeah. And so, well, how do you... How do you test your trust in God? Will you live the way that he's called you to live? Yeah, so going back to your original question, is a preacher really trusting in the truth of God's word if he's intimidated to say it? Again, he doesn't have to be a jerk about saying it or how he says it. He doesn't have to yell and scream. He doesn't have to use it manipulatively or you know to intimidate people. But if he's reticent to speak the truth, you have to question if, in fact, he really believes it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I I don't think... Uh, you had the Old Testament prophet. I don't think I'm in that ballpark at all. Um, they had a responsibility to tell the nation of Israel what God had said, and sometimes at great risk. In fact, the, the long history of Old Testament prophets is they generally got run out of town or they got stoned to death. 
So they lived with a lot of, you know, consequences for the courage to speak the truth. The nation didn't want to hear what they had to say. Mm -hmm. So they got rid of them. Um, So, again, I'm not placing the contemporary preacher or pastor in that same, you know, divine role. Um, As strictly as is the Old Testament prophet, I think they have a divine responsibility before God to speak the truth. And so I've even had to, I've even had to challenge myself. It would be a whole lot easier for me just not to ever go there. Yeah. Not to bring it up, not to say it because I mean, there's just certain topics right now that are just such hot buttons, you know, hot potatoes to handle. And you'll have a whole, you'll have a large, number of, of a church that'll say, yeah, just just steer clear of those topics. We know people don't like them, so don't talk about them. And um, I, I just think there's something really wrong about that. Yeah. And so, again, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, the rebel. I don't want to be the, you know, the, in the ointment I don't want to be the antagonizer whatever the words are I don't I don't want to be a jerk about it I'm just feeling a greater responsibility to tend to those things as a shepherd of a flock in order to prepare and to protect the sheep that's that have been entrusted to my care yep and I'm looking at my world and I'm seeing enormous influence that our culture has on people's lives. And a lot of Christians are seduced by it. And I'm, I'm trying to my best to at the right time in the right way to lean into that as a way of guiding and directing what pastures they should be in, what they should be feeding on. And um, I just, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for some of the pushback and the consequences of that in the situations where I've <laughs> talked about those things. In your defense, who knew that in the 21st century we were going to have to start defending <laughs> man and woman? Yes, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and but here's here's the odd thing about that is who knew, but then who knew that large numbers of Christians would be okay with what's happening. Yeah. Well, and a lot of them would say, look, I don't agree with it, but I don't want to hurt that person's feelings. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, there may be more important things than that person's feelings at this moment. There are more important things. Yeah. And that's... May was sarcastic. Yeah, I know. So... <laughs> So that's what that's what the calling of the you know the hard side of Christianity is about is having the courage to speak the truth regardless of what the consequences might be. And um again I'm not trying to be inconsiderate or insensitive but calling things for what they are in relationship to the fixed truth of the scriptures God's eternal word is a non-negotiable. And um, I, I think I'm not prepared to do it here today, but I, I, we could certainly walk ourselves through history and see eras where 
the voice of God in the world, the church, has abdicated its role of speaking the truth and um, taking it on the chin for whatever truth is you know relevant to that the situations of those societies and then watching societies pay for it dearly yeah because the the preacher lacked the courage to to say it yeah and um i i just don't want to be i don't want to be numbered among them again i i'm not trying to be the the uh, issues guy but i'm just seeing the power of the issues and its influence on the lives of Christians. And, uh, you know, f- for the most part, a lot of them are asking, somebody, please yeah, help me navigate this. And I meet a lot of people who are saying, help me navigate this because I got kids. Yeah. And I don't like what, what they're hearing, what is being, uh, what they're being introduced to and exposed to. And I, I have parents saying, would you help me? think all this through so that I know how to help my kid think it through. But if a, if a, if a Christ follower is being seduced by a culture and a society that's steeped in secular humanism and all of its implications, and they don't, they don't see its conflict with the scriptures then uh, we're in, we're in a world of hurt. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about before, like the worst part, I think the most pernicious part about I guess the um, the voices that are kind of profligating, propagating, propagating is profligating also a word. If it is, I don't know it, but yeah. you have surprised Maybe me I on may, a number of occasions may, of may, words that I didn't know. So. Some are real, some aren't. <laughs> um, but the voices propagating um, the secular humanist type ideologies, they use. I've always, I think I've said before, they use our virtues against us. They take mm-hmm. our virtues and they turn yeah. them into vices. And so that's how they can seduce a lot of people um, into going along with it. Because, we, you know, Christians are supposed to be caring. and Either you know, going along with and, it or not pushing back against it. Yes. And as you just mentioned earlier, the, the number one virtue that they're throwing up is love. It's not loving for you to say to somebody, you can't be that. You can't do that. That's wrong. That's not loving. And then, you know, it gets flipped on its head really quickly. And Well, it's not only loving, it's hateful. So what kind of Christian are you to say such hateful things to somebody who believes differently than you do? And, and that's where it gets all messy and it's complicated. But again, a Christ follower has to navigate that and not, and what I'm seeing is a lot of Christians are just choosing not to say anything because it's safer. Yeah. The only problem with not saying anything is that um, where does the truth get interjected? Because while the church may not be saying anything, I'll tell you academia is and Hollywood is and uh, society in a whole is talking to those things and pushing a belief. So if the church chooses to be quiet about it, then it's losing all the ground. Yeah. And it's losing its influence because it's just basically being neutralized. Well, and that's something that you think well, you and I have talked about that before, because you were going through like you had created a profile of disciple and things that people that a disciple 
you know, some fundamental doctrines that a disciple should know. And you had made a comment in a staff meeting, and you weren't saying this is how you're going to do it, but yeah, like it'll take, you know, a few years to get through all of these different things, because it will, because you, you know, you're yeah. just talking about Sunday morning. And I was like, oh, that's terrifying, <laughs> because it's going to take us two years to get to, like, man and woman, but yet every single day these people yeah. are yeah. inundated with yeah. the lies of the culture. Um, and I, it's fun. I always see, I think somebody else described it this way, but reality or truth, God's truth, it's always going to come back in, right? So, like, the truth winning in the end is not dependent upon us. However, we can we can help it come along, and I think, you know, you would ask, like, well, where does the truth come in? Will it come, like, for instance, let's just take gender for, and what we're doing to a lot of kids who are confused. The truth comes in in 20 years when all of them are, you know, saying they regret this, and, and, you know, we're having, the suicide goes up. Everybody's depressed, more depressed than we already are. Um, and, yeah, there's just there's mass regret because we've done all of these horrible things to children. And it's like, well, that's where the truth comes in. Whenever we look back in 20 years and we're like, what monsters were we then? Sure. Um, so, yeah, it, it, there are consequences to us not saying stuff. Sure. Not not responding. And I and I do think that a lot of these areas are places where the church has dropped the ball um, because they don't want to be the issues church, the issues guy, like you were saying. But it's like, well, this is the issues of our time, and right. someone's got to speak to it. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I've observed that you don't have a New Testament without somebody talking to the issues the New Testament wouldn't even exist because each one of those letters were written to issues that were happening in culture, society, and the church mm -hmm. at the time that they were written. Um, the book of Ephesians is like just full of social and cultural issues of the day. And the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus to address and confront those issues in relationship to the truth theological, biblical truth. Well, we're, we're how many centuries away while there's still, um, some of those issues are still prevalent in society that were prevalent in the first century. But there's also some new ones, some different ones. And so I guess in a real... Uh, hesitate to say this but in a real apostolic kind of way somebody has to talk to them because mm -hmm. they are issues facing the church issues impacting the lives of christians and somebody has to um, educate and inspire that church around the fixed truth of god's word in relationship to those things but man, and, and boy, have I seen this in the last two years of my life, to talk about most any of those things, there's such political hot buttons that, man, you, you it just, <laughs> just boils up, like really, really quickly, of the reaction to talking about those things. And I, I mean, I've heard all sorts of cautions, like, well, if you talk about those things, 
um, non-Christians won't come and visit our church because, well, they don't want to hear that. Or um, Christians of a certain political persuasion are going to leave because, well, that's contrary to their political point of view. And I mean, I've heard it all. Oh, that one's like, I mean, that's like abortion. It's like, well, you can't speak on, you can't even say your opinion on abortion because, well, there's people in the audience who primarily, yeah, 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 that that are like because if you if you vote democrat if you vote democratic, you have to at some kind of way be more open to the idea. Yeah, chances are, and so all of that kind of touchy yeah. sort of dynamic to some of these topics literally renders the preacher um, walking on eggshells, therefore avoiding the the topic. Or it puts him in a category where he's just a troublemaker and he's just a pot stirrer and he's, you know, he's, he's not loving. His whole, you know, motive isn't one of love. And so it just gets bizarre. And I'll just say it gets bizarre in my head and my heart trying to figure out how to do this. Yeah. And the whole reason that you've heard me say in The Truth Shall Set You Free because I shared, I shared with our staff a time or two about a situation that had occurred following one of my messages. It was, it was you know pretty emotionally charged and and very hurtful in my direction, and um, and a couple other scenarios that have played out, and um, part of kind of how I had to deal with it is rather than feeling like it's up to me to change that person's mind. Um, I've just had to say, God, you said you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So until you open their eyes and their ears to be able to understand, um, I, I, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. I, I'm relying on you to do that work and it's not my work to do. You know, that reminds me. So there was a, a friend in our friend group who, um, not necessarily somebody that I interacted with or else this situation wouldn't have occurred, but um, this individual would, she, they acted very, and they acted in a way that upset a lot of people, okay? And I think kind of unbeknownst to them. Okay. Um, so they were kind of being... Very annoying, un, un, and and I will give the grace and say, well, they probably weren't aware they were being that way. Right. No one told them, however, and so over a period of time, then everyone just disliked them because no one told them. And it's like, okay, well, maybe they aren't trying to be a monster, but they don't, they don't know. Right. They haven't had any corrective. Yeah, you know, they're co- blind to it. Yeah, they're blind to it. And so I kind of see that a lot of the same way. It's like. Well, yeah, it, does, it, is, it is not surprising to me that the immediate reaction whenever they're hearing something that goes against um, something that they're holding very dear, some, a, you know, something untrue that they're holding very dear, gender, whatever, they hear God's word, there's this very um, immediate kind of repulsive reaction to it. Yeah, bris- emotional, yeah, bristling. Um, the sad part is that that person has probably been lied to by a lot of people who love them mm-hmm. in their life, love them, but not enough to tell them yeah. what's actually true. And to me, that like that breaks my heart because now 
they find themselves in a scenario where they're just totally confused or where other people look at them a certain way or dislike them or whatever it may be. Right. Um, and I think we said maybe last episode, um, one before Tom, that, oh, shoot, what did we say? I just went blank. Did you? Nice. Yep. But, yeah, long story short, that uh, that it isn't love. Oh, yeah, yeah. You you had quoted um, Soul. Oh, Thomas Soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About how, well, if you want to do what's easy, tell them what they want to hear. You want to do, you know, whatever. I think what's best for them, tell them what they need to hear. Right. Um, and that's just so true. Like, yeah, it's not it's not easy to do it, but it is the more loving thing to do, like disciplining a child, not that, you know, your yeah. peer is a child. But um, This, I think, is illustrative. Um, wow. My wife and I, from time to time, will watch episodes of American Idol. Yeah. And uh, we generally like the later rounds when oh, they yeah. kind of pulled out the best, and now they're competing. I think I know you're going on this. But... Um, <laughs> They don't even do it so much anymore as they used to in the early days of American Idol is they would show you these people that would come in to audition. And the truth of the matter is they were horrible singers. But there were some of them where when you see the interaction, they sing and the judges give their critique. These people are literally devastated. They, they literally, truly believe they were great singers. And, you know, Simon says, you know, you're awful. They, they bring this people on for Simon, let's be real. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, that's all part of, you know, Hollywood. But um, you, you look at that person and go, okay, so a mom, a dad, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, somebody strung this person along, led them to believe that they were a really great singer, and they were so great that they could become the next American Idol. I mean, yeah. that's how... Okay, spiritual, biblical word, that how deceived they were. Okay? So I think it's illustrative. I think when human beings stand before a holy, righteous, eternal, sovereign God, there's going to be a lot of shock. Like, what? What? Because God's not politically correct he's not socially correct he's not culturally progressive so he's not going to say well you know what i know you believe that really strongly and like you had these reasons okay i'll i'll release you from your obligations to refuse my word it's it's just not going to happen so like an idol there's just going to be this like what i thought i was doing the right thing well, you thought because you ignored the truth of the scriptures. You thought wrongly. And there's eternal consequences for that. And uh, so I think a pastor has a divine responsibility to love his or her people enough to say, hey, I got to tell you, you're a really lousy singer. That's the truth. And if a person will be open and humble enough to hear it, then either two things could happen. They could stop pinning their hopes on becoming an American idol, and they could find something else to do. 
Or they could start taking voice lessons and get honest instruction about how to become a better singer. So when the preacher's delivering the gospel, he's not trying to be a jerk. He's trying to say, hey, you know what? Your sin has jeopardized your eternal standing before a holy God. Hate to tell you this, but your heart is depraved and your sin is has your sin places you under the condemnation of God. But there's help. There's Jesus and his death on the cross on your behalf. Please, whatever you do, like Paul says, we we plead with you. Believe. Trust in Jesus. And um but it just doesn't play that well. That doesn't play that way in our society. You're you're being aggressive, antagonistic and all the words. And it really just takes a courageous heart to say, I, I got to keep doing it. Especially when, like, I know that I can be overly aggressive or just a jerk sometimes, like we all can. I know I can be that way, and I also know whenever I wasn't. And no matter what, at the end of the day, if you're saying the thing that they don't want to hear, they're going to, if they don't have, which they probably won't have anything else at the end of the day, they're just going to call you a jerk. Like, you're going to be mean. And, and in their eyes, you are being mean because you're attacking a part of who they are because now yeah, we've yeah. taken these weird things and made it our identity. Um, like, not much of human history has, like, sexuality been a very integral part of identity that we, like, spewed from the rooftops, right? Right. right. More, more, more private thing most of the time. Um, but now it's, like, something that's very out there. And so... If you attack that, well, you're attacking the core of who that person is. And so, no matter what, you will be perceived as a jerk. Um, almost basically no matter how hard you try not to be. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm constantly working on what's the best approaches to speak the truth without being a jerk. Knowing that in some cases you're just not going to win. So... And this is more in private conversations, but I, I also yeah. do it. I do little disclaimers in my messages, sometimes playfully, like, you're not going to like this. I know this, but just hear me out. Or uh, you may disagree with this. That's fine. Explore it on your own. I mean, I do these little disclaimers all along the way, but um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to move toward them because of the danger that sin poses to a human life. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just trying to navigate that in the most loving way possible. I think something else, too, that's confused a lot of people, um, and I, I'm actually not exactly sure how or where you stand on this, but I think something that I perceive as being confusing to people it's probably a whole other podcast episode, but our um, we've said and made every single sin seem to be the same. And so let me qualify that. Sin has the exact same consequence, no matter how small or how large, in that, you know, it, it, you, you are not just in the eyes of God. Um, you're not righteous in the eyes of God and you're separated from him. That's what sin does, no matter how large or how small. 
However, there's other sin, specifically those sins that are that you refuse to repent of, that um, I think have different grades to them. I don't know where you stand on that. Like, I don't think that my lie, I don't think God's heart or his reaction is the same to my lie as it is to uh, someone's murder. Okay. Um, yes, it puts me in the same place if I go without accepting Christ as my Savior. I don't think that God's reaction to it is the same. I could be wrong. But <clears throat> that makes us view sin very, very lowly, I think. We don't we don't see sin mm-hmm. as being as devastating as it should be. Am I making yeah. sense? Yeah, I, I, I would disagree with you on how God sees and reacts to sin. I could be wrong, sin. too. Sure. I'm just saying... I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I hold a different opinion or perspective. I think whatever the sin is, it's abhorrent in the eyes of a holy God. Sure. And Equally it, abhorrent? Uh-huh. That is why I think in Matthew 5, Jesus says, um, if you lust, you have committed adultery. Mm-hmm. And adultery was offensive, and so is your lust. Um, if you hate, it is to kill. Murder is abhorrent to a holy God, well, hatred is abhorrent. I think that's the equation that Jesus is drawing. So we're all equally um, guilty before God, and our sin is equally devastating. Now, in a society or in the real world, based on laws and sorts of social structures, um, you lying to somebody is very different than murdering somebody. Well, even in the social structure that God set up himself, it was different. The consequences for such things are different. Yeah, consequences are different, but I don't I don't think the seriousness of it is different. Okay. I'll have to think about it. The implications of lying to somebody... Um, the consequences or the outworking of that may be less severe than murdering them. But I, I, think that, I think that the place we need to be is that I'm just as exercised over my lie as I would be if I murdered someone. Mm-hmm. Because in that... Because... Because in that way, then, my diligence to repent, confess and repent, becomes the same. I think we're almost, I think that the, maybe we're kind of almost getting to the same point. Because, like, I w- my concern was that if we see everything with the seriousness as we see a white lie that we told, then our... Our feeling of, of 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 living in a place that is far from God might be less than it should be. Yeah, so you look at it from the perspective that making the white lie as serious as murder somehow reduces... It reduces murder. It reduces and I know murder. Yeah. And I'm saying I look at it from the other perspective. That looking at the white lie as serious as murder raises the importance of my reaction and my dealing with the little white lie. Yeah. Otherwise, I 
I'm prone to justify it and not confess and repent of it. So maybe a better way of saying it is just unrepentant sin. Um, sin that you're just accepted on living with and... Oh, yeah. That's, you know what I'm saying? Like, just, oh, well, I'm just going to go to the grave, keep doing this thing. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to play out. Like, if you make zero effort in, <laughs> like, I don't know how that plays out yeah. in the long run. Yeah, I actually had an interesting conversation with my wife last week. We were, I had said something in a meeting. She didn't necessarily disagree, but she didn't understand what I said, but she didn't call it out in the meeting because of the dynamics so she was pressing me um for an explanation at home we got to talking about it and um the tension is and it's a real tension is understanding the seriousness one of god's words and the consequences of disobeying it on one side and then the other tension pushing against it is grace and forgiveness and the cross and our standing with Jesus. And she was having a hard time reconciling something that I had said about the seriousness of God's word and the consequences of disobeying it in light of the truth of the gospel. And it is a tension. And I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but I'm leaning, at least right now where I am in my thinking, is I'm leaning to the fact that we may be surprised at how we have misused grace to give ourselves permission for all sorts of things that are contrary to God and his call on our life. Yep. Yep. Yeah, there has to be there has to be a happy medium ground between the like cheap grace that um I'm blanking on names today. The German. The German. You know what uh, I'm talking about? Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer. The cheap grace that Bonhoeffer well describes and what is definitely the way that most Christians look at it. And the more seriousness of how, like I would say, Catholicism sees sin. Um, of, well, if you if you die without having confessed, you know, yeah. then you're probably in some doo-doo. Um, there probably there has to be a medium ground between that, right? Well, I, I don't even know if it's a medium ground as much. And boy, talk about thoughts off the top of my head. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's about medium ground. I think it's about the environment or the condition with which we proceed. I don't. I don't. I don't react to my sin because my fear of being judged and condemned because I live in grace and the salvation of Christ through my faith. So I'm aware of sin, but I don't deal with my sin because I'm afraid it's going to have eternal complications or consequences. I deal with my sin because it's so abhorrent to my holy God whom I love. Yeah, and in, I can feel 
the disconnect that my sin has on my relationship with him. Like yes. I feel removed. Yeah, so so sin sin robs us of the joy, the peace, the hope, the the health of the life that Jesus calls us to. And so my 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 dealing with sin, large or small, isn't because I'm afraid of the eternal consequences because I'm not. My salvation is secure. Really, the healthy perspective is I deal with my sin because it's robbing me of all that Jesus has for me. And my longing to have what Jesus has for me in true joy and deep peace and, you know, abiding contentment and, and all the, the good things, that's out there. That's, that's within my grasp as I, by faith, obey him. So my sin just simply disturbs or interrupts my capacity to enjoy that. And if I truly want to enjoy the everlasting life, or the eternal life that Christ speaks of, it's not just heaven. It's the better, healthier existence on this earth. If I truly want that, then I deal with my sin because it it robs me of it. Yeah. Not because I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell, because I know that's not true. I deal with it because I know it's upsetting to the Spirit of God within me. It's disturbing to my journey of following Christ and realizing what it is that he has for me. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's also just, it's just so below like the calling and position, no matter what your position in life, the calling and position that God has placed you in. I'm like, well, whether if you're a father or a husband and whatever, it's like, man, I'm, God has called me to so much more than me falling in back into these things. Um, you know, something that kind of kind of taking us back to the truth setting you free thing is <clears throat> a lot of people, I, I think a lot of people think about the sin part, truth setting you free from sin. Sin is just being like the action oriented part of things. And you just brought up correctly, you know, well, if, if you have hate in your heart, well, then you've committed murder committed murder in your heart. Um, or if you have lust, well, then you've committed adultery. But a lot of people just kind of think of, like, well, it will set you free from the sin. But, I, like, people also need to realize that I think that applies to wrong way of thinking as well. And because sin will manipu- manipulate you into thinking that it's not sin, really. Right. Right. Um, and so something that I do with myself, and if I'm ever talking with friends and, the, you know, my relationship with them, allows for it or whatever. Um, but something I do with myself is I make sure that I like I admit that I've willingly rebelled against God rather than kind of uh, playing ignorant to what I was doing. And same thing with my friends. It's like, hey, I can't force you not to do something, obviously. But... I feel like, you know, granted, these are my good friends or whatever. I I don't think it's acceptable for you to to also then lie to yourself to justify it. And so, look, if you, as long as you just say, hey, this thing is wrong, and you can keep doing it without a problem, well, I can't do anything else, right? But can we at least agree that this thing mm. is a sin? Yeah. And then if you want to go do it, then so be it. 
And I try to do that with myself too, because it helps me look at reality, right. right? It helps me look at what's true rather than allowing the sin to cloud my mind to, to, to make it all seem nicer, to, to, yeah. to keep it in the dark. Yeah, I saw a great sermon one time by Andy Stanley where he was talking about the difference between somebody um, sinning and somebody making mistakes. Mm-hmm. He says a lot of people will justify their sin by saying, oh, I, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> you disobeyed the truth of God. You you sinned. There's a world of difference. Yep. And I I think part of the deception of our enemy is primarily the ways that we think and the language we use language we use to describe the thoughts that we have and so we're seeing this in spades right now is um the the way of thinking is so deceived that people are justifying anything and that can happen in the life of a Christian. They can be so deceived in their thinking, so misinformed about their understanding of God's word, primarily because they have an imprecise understanding of God's word, that they justify, they rationalize and excuse so much that if they were honest to it, um, they'd have to own up to the fact that the Spirit of God is not is not justifying that. An example I heard about that <clears throat> that I just thought was insidious. Insidious. Was I think it truly is insidious was the words that doctors are are uh, instructed to use when referring to a pregnancy if the woman's considering abortion. And now this is not me spewing hate towards women who, or or anybody who's gone down that road. Um, at all, um, but if the if the pregnancy is desired, then the doctor can refer to the baby as a baby. If it's undesired, they're instructed to use the word fetus, mm-hmm. and it's to dehumanize so that it's easier sure. to kill the baby. Sure. And I just thought, I mean, I was like, it may, I was infuriated. Yeah. Oh man, that was big, and so, but yeah, it's, it's crazy how. People don't really think, they don't think about that until it gets something like that to where it's like, oh yeah, well I can definitely see why that word would, that has a lot of weight, Yeah. that switch. I saw a quote, something like, it can't be a baby if you want it and a fetus if you don't. Well, it can by the medical standards. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that gross? Yeah. I know what you're saying. And that, that that's happening across all sorts of moral and ethical. Oh yeah situations um but that's that's the logical outcome of secular humanism is and justify the means and um follow your heart live your truth that's that's all that's all secular humanism at its at its most you know flowery best and a lot of people who call themselves christians buy rate it buy into it and uh So if the truth sets us free, but we don't believe the truth, then there's only one option. We're enslaved. Yep. And uh, a lot of Christians 
a lot of Christians um, who don't know the truth because they won't give themselves to really studying it. Um, they have to recognize this while they're enslaved. And the hope is that they have a friend or a pastor with enough courage to speak to it. Not only courage, but this is something that I think with, with enough love for them yeah, to yeah. speak to it. Yeah, exactly. To say, I'm so concerned about the deception with which you're living your life that I'll call it out, regardless of how you might feel about me or how, might, how you might treat me in light of it. I love you enough to say this truth. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a delicate road to, to walk. It was interesting Sunday um, after I got done, which wasn't a particularly, it wasn't a controversial message of any kind, but um, uh, I invite people to come up afterwards uh, if they're new to the church. I just want to meet them. So I, I came up, uh, a, a gentleman and his wife came up, and uh, the, it was their first Sunday. And they were, um, he said something like, um, he was saying how much he appreciated the message. And my he was referring to a teaching style. He says, I like how you just talk to people. And then he said something, I just thought it was kind of, it was very encouraging to me. He said, you obviously love these people. And that's the truth of the matter, is after 26 years of serving this church, I can honestly say I love them. And relationally, um, many of them, they've been around for a lot of the years. And so they, they are truly objects of my love i love them and um those are the ones that i don't know i love them because of um them giving themselves to you know learning about god's word and letting us be a church family to them but um you're exactly right because i love them i'm feeling more and more urgency to talk to these hard things because I'm becoming more and more aware of the significant impact it's having on the church, big C Um, it's having in their lives as men and women and parents and husbands and wives. And I, I feel concerned about it. Yeah. I mean, genuinely concerned about it. So when I was on my sabbatical, I was, I had committed that I was going to do some reading. And in the scriptures, I was going to read through the uh, life of Moses. I have a connection to Moses, long story, but um, I was reading through his story, and I was in what is otherwise a pretty boring part for most people. And and that's when God's giving the instructions for how to design and build the tabernacle. And I kept noting, wow, this is very detailed. And God's like giving them the measurements, what kind of wood it needs to be made out of, what kind of 
metal uh, or element it needs to be covered in and how it was to be carried and set up and torn down. I mean, very specific instructions. And there's a couple places where he very specifically says, if you don't do this exactly like I tell you to do it, you'll die. Yep. And I guess I was just being impressed once again, while we live in a very different era of God's relationship to mankind, we live post-cross in grace. I don't think God's changed his word is still very serious, and the consequences for it are very severe. There's instances in the New Testament where people die. Yeah. Worship and bad worship and false giving or whatever. And this is where, this is where I'm becoming more and more alarmed in that. So if he's not striking people dead immediately, like we see in the book of Acts. Yeah. And we could we'd say, well, yeah, it's probably not happening today, or at least not on that scale that, that we recognize. So then what are the severe consequences? I think the severe consequences is showing up in eternity and realizing that you were not, in fact, a genuine believer who trusted in Christ for your salvation. You may have known all the answers, you were in church every Sunday, and you went through all the motions, but your faith was not squarely founded in Christ and Christ alone. You fold yourself into believing that checking the box and, you know, doing the things would somehow make you right with me. And that's, that's the severity of the consequences that I'm feeling like, man, I have to talk to the truth. Otherwise, we risk a lot of people being deceived in their own heart and mind about the genuineness of of their salvation because you you can't i know we have a whole aversion to works and grace and works and faith and i i get that i i'm a big proponent of your your works will not save you but i can't step around the fact that over and over again in the life of Jesus, in the writings of the New Testament, works sure do prove what your faith is really all about. Yep. So this idea of having all the right things to say but not really following through with it, I think is, is pretty significant. That's like saying that you trust your friend to catch you in a trust fall, but never actually falling. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. did you trust then? It's but me and Joe Teep were talking about that, that distinction. Um, that essentially justification, whatever your theology is on it, has to, uh, the thief on the cross has to meet it. Now, okay, so that means that your faith, you know, salvation is by faith alone. He meets it. Well, we all have more time than the thief on the cross had. And so there's probably some type of expectation afterwards if he had more time too. And that'd be the role of sanctification and the fruit of your faith. Right. right. So, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, I mean, everybody that I meet who's a Christian, they say they, they love 
Jesus and they love others. But if it's it's interesting if you if you drill down into one Jesus's definition of the word love or is how he uses the word love, and if you look at the writings of the New Testament later on, how they interpret the great commandment: love God, love your your uh, neighbor. Um, it's really clear that what Jesus meant and what the Apostle Paul affirms is you can say all day that you love God or that you love others, but until you serve and obey, obey God and serve others, then your love is just words. So there has to be the proof. There has to be the actions accompanying the confession in order for the confession to, in fact, be true. Yeah. I think that's the point James is making. Um, he's In his letter, he's saying, it's your deeds that demonstrate if, in fact, your faith is legitimate. So we can talk about saving faith. If you think that's just saying the right words and having you know done a few of the formalities— and yet your life is not lived in relationship to it, in submission and obedience to it. And you and I aren't judge, but there might be real cause to question if, in fact, your faith that you profess is going to save you. Yeah. Well, and heck, well, now we're just, how much do we trust God and his words if, if we aren't even willing to say certain, certain parts of it? Yeah, you know, it's like, well, yeah, and he gave that to us. It's him. It's his words inspired through writers. And, and it's like, well, do we actually trust him enough or do we want to hide those parts of him? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. It's an interesting world that we live in and the era that we live in. I keep, I keep reading articles that says the pendulum is going to swing back, but I don't know. I'm not quite sure, even in swinging back, will it go anywhere near where we might really want it or need it to be. But um, I, I feel like for the, not for the first time, maybe maybe for the first time the urgency is um, to speak the truth to a generation that is deceived. And do it in the confidence and the comfort of knowing the truth shall set them free regardless of whether they accept it or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, absolutely. It's tough. You know, there was this, uh, an example, I guess, something uh, even where someone as outspoken as me, I had pause. I was with uh, Allie and her family, and they, some of her more distant family have different beliefs of things and whatever. And um, a good bit of them believe, you know, they were either, they might be Christian or they're Catholic or whatever, but they kind of had that universalist stance of, well, all roads kind of lead to he- lead to heaven. Right. And I felt very strongly convicted in that moment to essentially say, well, are you, aren't you, aren't you Christian or Catholic or whatever? It's like, okay, well, regardless if you're Catholic or if you're Christian, I share the same faith as far as this goes, and, and it's like, no, that's like that's not true. Only those who place their faith in Christ will go to heaven. All roads do not lead to heaven. 
And I just like I had to say it, and immediately like they were all like, <laughs> "Oh no!" But but seriously, like if it was if it's yeah, it's uncomfortable, but um, not that God like whips you up afterwards, but you just you feel. Uh, yeah, yes, you just have a feeling of satisfaction knowing that you honored what was true. Does that make sense? Like, you know you can just kind of, like, stamp your name on, well, I didn't abdicate my responsibility to say what I should yeah. have said just then. Sure. And so, yeah. that, that In just small ways like that can cause pause and, and question that they right. will reconsider the entire thing. But, yeah. This has been good. Any last words? Uh, yeah, the, the last words. Um, I shared in a message uh, two weeks ago, I guess. What does it mean to be filled with faith? Like your life is full of a trusting God. Um, I think the demonstrating attributes of what that faith-filled life looks like is a certain confidence about the message that you declare and the way that you live your life and a courage to speak up about it and, in a sense, let the chips fall because in faith you know that ultimately those chips will fall in your favor. Regardless of the pushback and the criticism and being ostracized, whatever consequences are. Um, a Christian whose life is filled with faith is somebody characterized by confidence and courage to do things God's way because they believe that ultimately God will have the last word. It's that confident and courage that allowed, for instance, the disciples to, yeah, you know, follow this thing to the point of being murdered, crucified, right. all the way to the end. And so I'm challenging myself, especially in light of some recent reactions to things I've said. Um, I'm challenging myself, Paul, how full is your faith? How full of faith are you? Are you willing, um, like prophets of old, to step to the platform and, and say the hard things. Again, not being a jerk, not being rude or aggressive or insensitive, but saying the hard things and being willing to accept whatever the consequences might be, knowing that you did the right thing. As unpopular as it might be in a society that doesn't want to hear hard things. So I, I'm encouraging Christ followers, um, trust your beliefs. Trust these historical, biblical, theological truths that we've put into words as ways to describe uh, what God has revealed. Um, have confidence in them. And have the courage in the classroom. Have the courage at the workplace, have the courage in your home to speak up, um, to have input, to contribute something to the discussion, even though they may look at you sideways and make fun of you 
have the courage that these things need to be spoken because if if they don't I, I just dread to think of the church growing so completely silent that Hollywood and secular um, academia have all to say mm. what's the quote evil can only prevail whenever good men yeah. do nothing yeah it's very true yep well good episode my friend yeah enjoyed it it must be this new arrangement the chairs i like the chairs yeah yeah i mean i'd like more space but uh to kind of sprawl (laughs) but i did like the chairs all right well i guess i'll watch this episode and tell you what i think yeah we'll see we'll see yeah we'll see how funky it looks being so close to these things but all right everybody we'll see you next time